Dear listener, this is Interfaith-ish. I'm your host, Jack Gordon, and every other Wednesday right here on Tacoma Radio, we bring you bold conversations about what we believe, why we believe, and how we navigate the common ground and differences between our traditions. Dear listener, I hope you are ready for what is hands down going to be the nerdiest episode of Interfaith-ish to date. I am so excited to share this conversation with you. As you may know, one of the biggest film releases that was delayed because of the pandemic is the much-anticipated remake of the sci-fi classic Dune. What you may not know is how Sufi Islam influenced Frank Herbert, the author of the original novels. Intrigued? I know, I was too. So, to explore this subject further, this morning I'm joined by Ali Karju Ravari, Professor of Islamic Studies at Bucknell University. And to give us more nerdy takes on the intersection of religion and sci-fi and fantasy is Michael Haycock, Christian Life Coordinator at Georgetown University. Don't worry if you've not read or seen Dune, dear listener, because we're also going to get into the Chronicles of Narnia, representation of religious minorities in sci-fi, and you're going to leave with a syllabus laden with recommendations to add to your bookshelf and watch list. So hold on to your shy halloo, dear listener. It's time to get into some interfaith-ish. Guys, this is so great. I'm so I'm so happy that it, it worked out. Michael and I talked a few uh, months back, and so this has been on my mind for a while. And then I just happened to come across Ali your your article as I was I was revisiting Lynch's Dune, um, yeah. and it and it got me thinking about things. And I said, you know what? I'm, I'm I want to hear I want to learn a little bit more about this this yeah. subject. And lo and behold, there's your article. <laughs> I said, I got to talk to this guy. He already wrote the article on it. A mentor of mine made me write that article back then. And I was like being super like, but wait, my research article is not done yet. And she, <laughs> she was like, she was like, you're never going to get like, sure, like get that done one day. But for now. <laughs> um, so, so do you, do you have, a, do you have a, a, a longer form or a book in you that that's going to? Not a book. I mean, I, th- I definitely think books can be written about it. But like in terms of my research, I'm definitely like solidly into like the pre-modern and stuff like that. Um, okay. This is like... Uh, there is an article that's coming out of this because um, uh, I went so he there's an archive in Fullerton Cal State Fullerton and it's really interesting because it's like all of these like files are there and his personal some of his personal belongings the, his like his estate I guess or his kids like dropped his wallet in there with all of the stuff in it which and there's like 26 this, bucks in there too you, you can pick that up well there was no they took the money out <laughs> but like there were definitely things that like you know I think he would have taken out you know certain establishments that he liked to visit when he was in New York that maybe the card he wouldn't have wanted people to see. That kind of stuff. He's got a, 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 punch, a punch card for the glass slipper somewhere. Or something like that. Got, yeah. <laughs> the house Harkonnen. Yeah, exactly, right? Exactly, right? Um, so He's got some concubines on the side, we know. Yeah, yeah. So basically something like that. I was like, I was. Uh, it, it was a good lesson into like, you know, Watch your paper sure, trail. Yeah, watch your stuff. Yeah, watch your paper trail. Make sure that the things you leave behind aren't too spicy. Exactly, exactly. Right? Dune puns. <laughs> yeah. Well, guys, thanks so much for joining me. Um, where I usually start these conversations is is wanting to hear a bit about you, 
individually and how you come to your religious tradition and practice. But given the conversation, um, I want to I want to frame it in a little bit uh, of a different way to hear about your your personal life journeys. So to keep it on theme, um, I'll ask. Um, uh, so how did how did your religious upbringing intersect with science fiction and fantasy? Um, Ali, can you tell us a little bit about it? That's a good question. Uh, my parents are Iranian. Uh, we I grew up in the religious tradition of my parents, which is Shia Islam. Um, uh, my brother was always interested in sort of uh, Sufi Islam, which is, um, you know, for lack of a better word, what people call mysticism. But mm-hmm. it, because of that, uh, questions of like cosmology, the future, time, were actually a big part of my childhood. And like most kids growing up back you know, I mean, even still today, I liked sci-fi. I liked TV, right? <laughs> um, so I, I was just like, I like to read a lot, um, and I was always looking for tidbits about history or or things that were related to you know where my parents were from because we would visit often, and so mm. I was always trying to bring these two worlds together. And then I read Dune. Um, and I was like, wow, I know so many of these words. <laughs> and it's, it's like a really, it's like, it's, it's a really riveting tale. It, it's like, you know, it's pretty strong. Um, and I actually took it to Iran with me once to show it to my cousin mm. who was like, he, he's, he's, uh, in the film industry. He does a lot of, um, uh, editing on movies and so he was sort of my like nerd counterpart older nerd mm. counterpart and so we would watch these things together so we would talk a lot about it also oh. when i was like you know uh, uh, you were talking about the lynch movie but you know the sci-fi channel had a mini series on dune uh, yeah. which was much much better it was much better though it was really long oh i was gonna <laughs> like, i was gonna ask i was gonna ask where do you fall on that but we can we can get to that yeah, a little yeah, we'll bit later that's how i got so, to this and then I, <laughs> so so dune was your formative text that's that that's it, your that's your yeah, thing in a sense <laughs> in a jam. sense I was all right <laughs> yeah that's amazing very yeah. cool michael how about how about for you tell us about about uh about your religious formation and and how that hit up against nerd culture sure i was um born in provo utah while my parents were attending brigham young university as undergrads and as as you can probably guess there um from a latter-day saint slash mormon background multi-generation on both lines Mm. um family goes back in southern utah 150 plus years Mm. um some good some bad um, but that's an interesting question. For me, they kind of grew up side by side. My first exposure to fantasy besides animated films was basically the Chronicles of Narnia. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. And so well, I'm glad I, was... I picked both of you. I didn't realize that these were, these were the formative <laughs> texts. So that's cool. <laughs> well, and this is, this is what's funny is I didn't really, I wasn't really into fantasy much as a young child. Mm. Like, Um, It was Narnia and then nothing else. Um, I was a Trekkie otherwise. Oh, um, okay. Which was something I inherited kind of through my father's parents, through my parents. Uh Uh-huh. And I I really only started reading fantasy when I discovered Lord of the Rings Mm. at like age 13 or something Mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Um, But... So was it something that you brought to... um to church with you would you would would other lds folk uh uh were they as into narnia as you were 
No, not really. Um, <laughs> I, I can't say I had too many close friends at church when okay, I was growing it. up. Got it. Um, it I, I did have nerdy friends at school, but none of them were Mormon. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So, yeah, they kind of grew up along parallel lines until I got to college when I met other Mormon nerds. Got it. Um, there were a few of us um, at, at my university, um, but... Uh, that's kind of where they started intersecting. Yeah. I, in fact, never read Orson Scott Card until partway through college. Mm-hmm. Um, before then, it had just been, I love world building, I love mythology, I love the creative work that goes into things, especially like Tolkien. One of my favorite, this is why I'm so excited, I'm literally kind of vibrating. I'm glad he didn't have any coffee uh, earlier because I'd be way too jittery for this conversation. But this is, you know, this is one of my favorite subjects to really get into because I think that in my own reflection on my life, so I wasn't necessarily a big, like, uh, fantasy person growing up, but I, I, was, I came into it uh, through comic books. And mm-hmm. as an adult, I, I realized that, that so much of um, my, you know, my particular religious education had had to do, I think it sounds like with you, with you, Michael, uh, around mythology and really just loving mythology and and reading sort of the Old Testament as um, essentially a, a series of, of superhero origin stories, you know, mm. that they had had these fantastic powers and far out there names and not not all of them had their had their hands clean it was definitely more on the marvel vein than i think the dc vein of things <laughs> you know everybody a little bit of angst going on in their in their story there um but that's you know i i couldn't quite care less about sort of the the spiritual side of it so much mm-hmm. except for the you know quest for justice and so forth mm-hmm. and so so i think whenever i encounter other people who are likewise mm-hmm um uh have a have whatever their religious formation is whatever their religious tradition is but also can geek out on these on these stories it's mm-hmm. it, it 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 uh makes mm-hmm. makes me very happy makes it makes my uh, little <laughs> nerd heart fluttery actually might i add something go for it um so the two stra- threads didn't really connect explicitly mm-hmm. but i did resonate with parts of lds thought or Mormon thought that resonate with science fiction concepts. Mm -hmm. The idea Mm -hmm. that there are other worlds out there, that they are populated with people. Um, That's, and just even some of the visual iconography of Mormonism, you don't walk into other churches and see pictures of planets and nebulae. Um, (laughs) But you will do that at say like the LDS temple visitor center in Salt Lake city there's an, a kind of an unabashed embrace of the visual universe that you seldom see in other strands of uh, Christian culture. Mm-hmm. Cool. So I want to take a, a, a little step back here and, and just help people who maybe don't have as deep of a knowledge about these texts um, to understand a little bit about um, the stories that are behind them. So Ali, for somebody who hasn't read 
um, the series. How did Frank Herbert draw on Islamic influences uh, when writing Dune and, and creating the world of Dune? Yeah, so according to sort of like the received knowledge and his own sort of uh, interviews, uh, he thought about Dune when he had a reporting job, a, a journal, like he had to go and uh, make a news report about uh, controlling sand dunes in Oregon, in Florence, oh, Oregon. Oh, okay. Uh, I, I didn't uh, know about that. He actually, he actually never published that until way later when, when it was published in uh, a commemorative volume about him. Uh, so that that project never ended, but that sort of started a five-year process where he started to think a lot about ecology and religion and, and how they overlap, right? Um, and because of that and because of his interest in sort of sand dunes <laughs> he got interested in sort of uh the middle east but but also he, i mean he was always really adamant on saying that he's taking broadly from a lot of different sort of cultures um so but of course in in the sort of uh process it's very clear and it was very clear to his earliest readership that he makes elaborate use of Arabic, Persian, Turkish, a lot of these different sources, the eschatology of Islam, right? The the main character is called the Mahdi, who's an eschatological figure in Islam who comes either with Jesus or right before him at the end of uh -huh. time. Muslims believe in Jesus as the Messiah. Um, and so he draws on a lot of these different, different sources. Uh, like, and it literally runs through the entire series. And even his understanding of how religion works in the future, it, it's not Islam per se, hmm. but it's the notion that religion changes. Uh, he's really interesting in, in sci-fi authors because he's one of the first people, in, as far as I know, to say that, listen, if we actually do have space travel, that will fundamentally change every human religion. Um, right. And Definitely. so he, he, he tries to imagine how that would change. Right. Uh, and particularly with Islam being one of the biggest religions in the world. I mean, I think he's obviously thinking about well, what happens in a future where that flavor is sort of imparted without it being the same Islam of here and now. Yeah. And he, he did think a lot about this, even so when people asked him, like, what did you use for Arabic? He said that, look, I'm looking at colloquial Arabic and how Arabic has changed over time to think how this would change. One of the things that I wanted to ask you, and, and you're, you're sort of getting at it already, was was do you, as as somebody who's reading this with scholarship, um, interpret any of the characters as actually being Muslim? Or, or mm -hmm. is it, as you're saying, this is sort of um, a, an Islam of the future that, you know, is is called by maybe a different name, but and yet is 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 holding you know some of those same like you're saying terminology, spiritual concepts. It's it's a good question. I mean, because you have to really think about like for me, it's difficult, right? Because I have to parse my academic self out from my Muslim self to do this, right? <laughs> uh, I, academically, like historically, yeah. I mean, they're all possible iterations of a future Islam. Um, in fact, multiple. You know, at, at the glossary of Dune, he like has a list of. One of the appendixes of Dune is about religion, and he, he lists all the religions, the 10 major religions. Mm. Like half of those are probably different forms of Islam. <laughs> um, mm. They sound like it. Uh, and of course, if you think about the global, the global reach and historical aspects of what exactly Islam has been everywhere, definitely, right? Definitely it is. Um, but the thing is that like at the same time, I would also say that like, you know, Frank Herbert's not Muslim. Um, right. He's an deeply important, influenced by it. An important point. <laughs> an important point, yeah. And so, you know, it's interesting. Like, it, I, I don't sense, like, there's no metaphysics in Dune. For me, like, like Dune was always about 
thinking broadly about time, history, and, and human issues about how human beings and human societies and religion and politics work, right? Broadly, like mm-hmm. why? And for him, he himself says in interviews that he's really interested as to why we create gods out of people. Um, mm. and, and how that works. And so he sort of uses this this language drawn from Arabic and Islam to say it. Um, but I think like in terms of uh, metaphysics, I actually work uh, in my own research. It's, it's a lot of it works on um, cosmology in, in the pre-modern uh, Islamic world uh, and authors who like, you know, I, I teach a course called Religion and Alien Worlds, actually. Uh, and for this course, I translated and wrote an article recently that looks at a 12th century figure, uh, one of the most famous figures in the history of Islam. His name is Ibn al-Arabi. He's from southern Spain, but he dies in Syria. But in this, he has this like 20 volume work in its eighth chapter. He describes a world which, if you know his cosmology, is outside of our universe. Mm. So mm. so journeys to other worlds are very common in pre-modern world. But he actually is very clear in how he's structuring the sort of cosmology that this description is of a world that's even beyond paradise. Like it, it's so beyond the, the reach. And he goes there, he meets the people, right? He says other people have gone there. Uh, and in his explanations, though, he never uses a term that would indicate them being aliens, right? Uh, and I think that's actually, like, that's that's what I'm interested in. It's like, what, what, what if somebody was actually thinking with the different understandings of being and time and place and a universe and a world, like, how would they formulate sort of Islamic sci-fi, and I don't think it's what Frank Herbert would have done. Uh-huh. Frank Herbert is still very much into notions of, of linear time, of sort of genetic breeding, a lot of things that are uh, part and parcel of his own intellectual tradition, and of course the, the 1960s counterculture that yes. he is you know, a precursor to and part of also. Yeah. So similarly, Michael, if you can just set us up for folks who are not familiar with C.S. Lewis's uh, seminal work uh, with the Narnia series. So mm-hmm. tell us about how this book that many people probably know about the lion the witch and the wardrobe um Mm -hmm. but may not necessarily have read it with a christian lens and some of that those spiritual themes in mind so so can you can you talk a little bit about that yeah sure c.s lewis didn't necessarily approach the books with an idea of i am going to write an allegory he did that earlier in his life with the pilgrim's regress and it is it's a take on John Bunyan's The Pilgrim's Progress from the 1600s, but transplanted into 20th century, and it is bald-facedly an allegory. Mm. Narnia is a little more complicated. Um, So most folks are familiar with The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, which is the first one that he wrote. Um, In it, several children uh, get transported to um, another world, a fantasy world, uh, locked in a, an eternal winter. And as they explore, they find out that Aslan, the true ruler of the land, is returning um, to bring the seasons back again. Um, Aslan turns out to be a large lion and uh, ends up sacrificing himself um, in order to save one of the siblings from the white witch who had ruled the land um, of snow. Um, he does come back to life, citing uh, deeper magic from before the dawn of time, um, and banishes the, defeats the White Witch and restores basically summer to Narnia. Um, that's the first book, and 
the the Christian themes are pretty bald faced. Mm-hmm. You've got Aslan as a not as Jesus, but as a Christ figure. Um, and then in other books, they get a little more um, complex or a little harder to um, pick out at times. I find that when I mention Narnia to to Christian friends, oftentimes their eyes light up, you know, with a sort of a childlike wonder because they're remembering what it was like to to read those books. And I'm, I'm curious for you, why... What what have you heard from from other Christian friends, either from the LDS tradition or maybe from other traditions, that, yeah. that for whom it, it meant so much? That's a good question. Um, I would say that part of it is just C.S. Lewis presents appealing characters and narratives in an appealing world, hmm. um, in kind of a comforting world, not a not a world where there isn't any hardship or sorrow, but where there's kind of a redemption of those things. Um, it probably oh, oh. didn't hurt that it was like a, a a fantasy book that you you could bring to uh, to Bible class or something like that, and it didn't have some like bronze bikini babe that's like on the cover fighting a dragon with a broadsword. <laughs> <laughs> that probably is true for some people. I was never into the bronze bikini um, fantasy novels myself, um, but I think. So going farther than that, um, I think part of it is just its reception in Christian culture. C.S. Mm-hmm. Lewis has kind of been branded as an author who is safe. So while mm-hmm. a lot of evangelical Christians right. have shunned things like Harry Potter, like mm-hmm. they can excuse C.S. Lewis because he is a prominent and well-regarded Christian apologist. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think that accounts kind of for the back end. Yeah, um, but no, I think that's an important point. Right. And I think the most interesting reflection I've heard was from a friend who's ex-Christian, not Christian at all anymore, um, and reflecting on the last of the Narnia books, The Last Battle, which is quite apocalyptic um, and has, uh, has received a good amount of criticism for various aspects. Um, but this friend remarked that the vision of heaven that C.S. Lewis presents there, one of adventure, one of reunion, one of restoration and preservation of what's mm. good, is a like affirmatively appealing vision of heaven, the way my friend had not experienced mm. in their experience of Christianity before that point, yeah. and yeah. still ha- and still resonates with them even as they disbelieve in Christian doctrines. Yeah. And so that's, inter- think- that's interesting to have that that place of solace then with those you know the the best of a Christian tradition right that that, mm-hmm. that they could find that in a a uh, you know non central text you know for for you know for the for the religion um, yeah Ali I want to I want to also turn to you and talk to talk about um, a, similarly another major theme or a major theme that is present in Dune um, the 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 use of the term jihad, uh, which is which is really central to to um, to Dune, it's something that's repeated over and over again. So, so how is jihad presented in Dune? And um, you know, to walk us through a little a little bit about the spiritual concepts as it's presented on the planet Arrakis. Yeah, I mean, so uh, again, this is a 
white guy in the 1950s and 60s writing about it. This is not sort <laughs> of like uh, the sort of long history of, of what jihad has meant to Muslims, right? Um, but, and so therefore the jihad is a holy war, right? Uh, and I think part of what I was sort of trying to argue in the article that, that you're thinking of was that uh, the fact that, you know, people avoid jihad but use holy war or crusade just further sort of like makes Islam alien as if you can't think of it in the same context, right? Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise, for Frank Herbert, uh, jihad is, is, is seen as being a sort of like war which is therefore destructive. Right. That's how he's thinking about it, except that because he's writing the 1950s and the 1960s, when he's using the term jihad, he's not thinking of our current context where we're thinking of the war on terror or post sort of post Cold War, the the political division. It's not that Islam is a no, it's that a different Islam is known to them at that time, even for his own reading. So he talks about T.E. Lawrence, right? You know, Lawrence of Arabia being a major sort of influence, his, his things. But also when he's talking about jihad, we have to think about what are the jihads that are closest in history for him to think about. Um, so he's thinking about the anti-imperial efforts. For instance, mm. uh, some have pointed out, like, you know, uh, Imam Shamil in Dagestan against the Russian Empire. Mm. There are Chechen words that are used, right, in the text. Mm. But also what's really interesting for me is, like, he clearly is thinking about the Mahdi of Sudan, who fought against the British in the 19th century. Mm. Uh, in fact, the Mahdi of Sudan was a Mahdi, mm. right? Um, um mm. Uh, so, uh, who claimed to be this sort of eschatological figure, although um, it's a bit more complicated in the specific tradition the Mahdi is from, um, or even in, in West Africa or in other parts of the Muslim world. So he's thinking of uh, an era of jihad that was in the 19th century into the 20th century, which was done by people who were Sufi Muslims against imperialists. Mm-hmm. Right. So and that's pretty clear in terms of, you know, and, you know, the Mahdi of Sudan, like I mentioned, in English literature, there was a lot of stories for him to have read already at that time. So T. Okay. is not the only person. Like, so mm-hmm. there's like a story. There's, there's a book, Green Mantle, about about that sort of is building on that, that I think is also in the background there. Um, so in that sense, what's interesting is that he is seeing, you know, in the 19th century when colonial powers were pissed off that the people that they colonized were fighting back using this concept called jihad, uh, and they would talk about, oh, these people are fanatics, of course. I mean, I, I don't know how you interpret fanaticism when you're invading someone and they're angry at you. Uh, but it, <laughs> because spin. those people... <laughs> Because those people were Sufis, um, he does use a lot of the technical language of Sufism, which requires that a political leader uh, who is sort of like enter into sort of like uh, a period of uh, self-purification, which is also called jihad in Arabic. Uh, that is, that, that's, that's a type of jihad, it's the inner jihad, uh, in order to transform themselves and therefore be capable of leading other people. Mm. All right, this is a type of of political sort of uh, Sufism that became dominant in, in the post-Mongol period and continued right up to the colonial period. And and it was Sufis who were fighting against the imperial powers. So because of the circumstances of his history and, and the time that he's studying, studying Islam uh, and his interest sort of being part of that sort of counterculture movement in sort of individual mystic experience, and, and you know, a lot of him and his colleagues do talk about Sufis, he is then sort of taking that and reading that sort of version of jihad. Mm-hmm. Well, I, I wanted to uh, to to bring it into into sort of the the present and and part of the 
the the animating uh, 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 factor for this for this sh- uh, show, this particular episode is is of course that the the release of this new Dune film, and and this was in part what Ali was was writing about, and I and I wanted to hear a little bit about a little bit more from you about what your um, you were writing in your article, um, not just about this lack of of holding up the term jihad and replacing it uh actually with with crusade in in the in the material that we have so I, of course the movie hasn't come out yet as of this recording so um we don't know exactly how it's presented in the film but in the promotional material they're they're talking about uh crusade instead of instead of you know taking taking up that term jihad um and i think that it comes to this point that you you get to later in the article um where you're you're talking about asking the question or 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 affirming who exists in the future tells us who matters in our present and and i really i think that that it would be curious to hear from you like what does it say to us about and to muslims today um so I've spoken to European colleagues. They don't use the word jihad, but they also don't use the word crusade in the movie. Uh, so I, I have gotten some, some uh, what's it called? And I, I actually didn't have, uh, I, I expect it to be a good movie. I mean, I don't, I, uh, my point was that branding is always really revealing because look, Frank Herbert's Dune is the product of Frank Herbert's mind and his historical context. But the reception history of Dune is also incredibly telling. Into in how Islam has been perceived in American society, mm. uh, and what Islam is allowed to do, and what Islam is not allowed to do, right? Mm. So it, you know when you're dealing with the reception history, even in, in his own son's explanations of why his dad used Islam, uh, he says that look, all religions are from the desert. Islam is the most fanatical. You know, he wrote this, right? Um, wow. And and his his sort of uh, approach to it is like you know. Uh, the, the approach has always been if there's something meaningful in Dune, it's from the Buddhist side of Frank Herbert because he practiced Zen Buddhism. But like oh, a lot of people okay. back then, uh, he was, you know, he's kind of anti-institutional about it. Mm-hmm. He's like, yeah, I practice it. Um, but all the bad stuff, all the violence, that's the Islam. All uh, right. And that's, yeah, of, of course. Right. Like, you know, when I wrote that article, this I is got so son. many. This is his son uh, saying this. This is just not only his son, but it's also the entire reception history of Dune mm-hmm. and how it has been publicly talked about has mm-hmm. has been this, right? That, that it's this notion of, you know, yeah, all this bad. And this is something that's actually been studied in, in, in sort of religious studies. Uh, Tomoko Masuzawa, she has this book, The, the, world, uh, the Invention of World Religions, where she talks about, you know, from the very beginning of the discourse of world religions, uh, Buddhism and Islam were presented as being these polar opposites. And by the 20th century, that just became becomes common, right? And that's become mm. how, how people approve it. If there's something deep, it's the Buddhist stuff. If it's if it's not, it's it's the Islam. Now, of course, I don't Frank Herbert himself wasn't that that simple. He couldn't have written this if he was like that. Um, and I, I think he was well aware of Sufism. And in fact, when someone asked him like where is he getting all this from, in addition to like reading a lot, he said that he had friends who he was talking to. In his own words, I have Arab. I think he said, I have Arabic friends. I have Semitic friends, which sounds like he's just describing languages. But <laughs> um, uh, so, so uh, 
that's that's what like that's that's what's interesting for me. It's that you know the representation question, which I'm actually not as I'm personally not that invested in anymore. I, I think when I was younger, I really cared about it. At, at this point, I don't. Um, the quote that you said about you know who you can see in the future that's from N.K. Jemisin, uh, right. who's an amazing sci-fi author, um, and I, that really resonated with me. And actually, the first place that I presented an academic article about Dune, she was giving the keynote. So like I, I've been thinking about that uh, about her a lot in this um, because it is this issue of you know. This, it's the specificity that popular adaptations of anything Muslim cannot accept, mm. right? It's And that was so integral to Dune because for him, he was like, language is how I'm telling you that you're not here and now. And I want it to ref- reflect how real human language changes. He wanted to deal with real humans. I mean, he, he, he wrote sci-fi, he didn't deal with aliens. Um, and we could critique him on the fact that for him, conveniently, humans figure out you know, how to make everything like Earth. Right? <laughs> Wherever you go, just make another Earth. Um, and, you know, if you read the, the the story to its end, it's basically that humans don't ever change. Like, it's it, it's that's basically the ultimate sort of point. Mm. But uh, that specificity is what so many people are actually uncomfortable with. And, and for me, that's more telling. M- Muslims are almost one-fourth of the global population. Right now, you have a text that is completely drawn from it, and you know even the term jihad, which we talked about a little. I, I forgot to mention that there there is you know in his in his sci-fi future because he didn't like machines. Uh, there is a massive humanity-wide jihad against machines, which gets rid of AI right. basically. Right. Um, so like that's that's right. another. Sort of, a, it goes in a Battlestar Galactica sort of turn. It does, right? Uh, which was, that was that was like Battlestar Galactica was a real favorite of mine. I, I think I cried when I when 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 the ending came. We can go. Um, we can go <laughs> we can talk about that later. Another because that's a lot of religion. The parts oh, in there yeah. as well. Yeah, I, the guy who. Like, I, yeah. yeah, the guy who created Battlestar Galactica was Mormon, so he no dropped. Way. Yes, oh, <laughs> okay. I haven't seen the original. I haven't seen the original series though, so I can't Don't comment on it. it. <laughs> I, I like the other one, the later one more. Um, but but so so talking about like this issue of representation, I think that like if you read the first book. Um, it's very easy to see it as a positive anti-imperialist sort of story, but uh, and I think that is what both makes some people like it and makes some people uncomfortable with it. And the people who are uncomfortable with it, then later on, like, yeah, but he becomes evil later. Um, <laughs> which I, I don't think it's that simplistic. I think I think it really is about how humans make gods out of people. And if that person doesn't want to be a god, you have to take they have to figure out how to take take that apart. Yeah. Um, and I think that's that's an interesting sort of human story. But in terms of representation, I think we're at a very different historic moment now. I mean, if they don't if they choose not to represent Muslims or if they do or whatever they want to do with it, uh, I'm cool with it. Like you do what you want, because there are so many Muslim sci-fi authors now and you know I don't know, Miss Marvel is Muslim now. The people who are, are in charge, G. Willow Wilson and I think Sana Amanat. Um, yeah. They're, uh, they're like, Ahmed, you know, I think is the Saladin current writer. Saladin Ahmed, yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. So like they're there. That's being made into TV series. I, I feel like in the future, there's way more interesting things to come. And, you know, one of the things that I do in that course, my, my course, Religion and Alien Worlds, it's actually the first half of the course is reading pre-modern uh, Muslim 
fantasy, like precursors to fantasy and sci-fi in the pre-modern Muslim world, yeah. of which there's so much of this stuff. There's so much stuff about other worlds, about, you well, know, it's not, it's the not limits a, of the world. Even <laughs> Arabi has is, is got, the, got the jams going on there. We, he could need to win some new yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh really it's a, that's that's a that's actually like so ripe for like making some interesting you know stories and stuff from it's it's yeah, no it, doubt. like it's part of why i translated it i was hoping someone with more talent picks it up <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's let's talk a little bit michael i want to i want to get to you uh, pivoting slightly um from narnia i want to talk about um just briefly about the expanse with you uh, aka mormons in space um <laughs> so i i want to i want to just here sort of bouncing off of these ideas that Ali shared whether whether in the I mean the expanse is sort of the most obvious example but how do you see representations of the LDS tradition either in the future or in in these faraway planets and literature that deals with with those possible futures so I haven't seen too many I will admit and the part of the expanse that I have seen is uh three seasons of the television show um, I like I, that you see you haven't seen too much, but you've seen three seasons. <laughs> <of it. laughs> hey, I'm on season nine of Stargate SG One. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, yeah, in the Expanse, they're instrumental. Um, they're not characters. They don't really have much of an internal motivation. Um, they are presented as an organization that is wealthy enough and has the desire and kind of has a story of exodus. Um, so the authors needed a big ship that they could ram into an asteroid. <laughs> Who could buy a big ship that they could commandeer without, without risking military reprisal? The Mormons. <laughs> it's the same reason I think Mary Doria Russell in her novel, The Sparrow, as I'm just the, reading that now. I just I just found it a little free library, and I'm I'm getting into the Jesuit side of things. Okay, fun. Yeah, <laughs> they have the Society of Jesus buy an asteroid on a mission to another world. Mm -hmm. um, again, it's a non-governmental organization that could plausibly, or in an imaginative sense, build that sort of thing. I'll give a nod to Orson Scott Card. Um, even though but not his like, politics <laughs> his, well and even his books get probably <laughs> got problematic and kind of tiresome on rereading mm. but he does have a collection called the folk of the fringe which is about post-apocalyptic mormons that does some really interesting things one story is about um uh, salvage people going out into a sunken salt lake city and exploring the salt lake temple and it's kind of the idea of holy space and the connection with place. It's it's beautiful and moving. Um, and another story tells of, uh, from the perspective of Mormons who have their own like polity out in the Mountain West, facing an invasion by an indigenous slash mestizo empire coming up from Central America. And it's... Uh, an inventive reinterpretation of Book of Mormon kind of for prophecies about um, the future of the Americas, mm -hmm. which many um, United States Americans conflate with the United States. But Orson Scott kind, Card kind of turns it on its head. Interesting. Um, so I think that's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Um, other than that, um, 
I really enjoyed the novel The Infinite Future by Tim Workus. Like, it's not a sci-fi story in itself. The framing story isn't science fiction. But there's it embeds a story that is science fiction and deals with a lot of Mormon themes, kind of the uh, dealing with one's heritage, seeking out lost texts, coming to understand things. And then I need to give a nod to Stephen Peck as well. He's a, an evolutionary ecologist. Hey, ecologists um, at Brigham Young University um, who writes a lot of speculative fiction. Mm. Um, one story that I really loved of his is called Let the Mountains Tremble for Adonaiha Has Fallen. And it's about um, Mormons who colonized Mars and it's been thousands of years, they think Earth has been destroyed, and a probe arrives from Earth. Hmm. And so it explores kind of the evolution of faith, the idea of truth, kind of awareness of history, and faithfulness to one's own community and idea of history in the face of changing realities. Um, so he has a bunch of other work that's great. Um, that's what I would recommend. I think it's more, a lot more interesting than what non-Mormons have cooked up <laughs> about Mormons. At the, at the risk of, uh, of, of uh, really elongating our, our, our book list here, um, Ali, you mentioned Miss Marvel. Obviously, that's going to be, you know, the yeah. big splash one. Um, other, other authors that, that you think are, are doing a, a bang-up job uh, presenting the Muslim community? Uh, you can't ask a professor this and not get like a just a list of books, All right? right. Like, <laughs> give me the syllabus, professor. But <laughs> I mean, uh, so I mean, so Jewel Wilson uh, has you know interesting books that everybody should check out. Aleph the Unseen. Um, she, uh, she has what's the other book called The Bird King. Uh, so definitely her uh, to further represent the American sort of uh, aspect. Shannon Chakraborty uh, wrote a trilogy recently that, that explores a lot of fantasy themes, mm. um, drawing on Muslim sources. Um, if you want to sort of like uh, get out of America and English, I mean, there's such a long tradition of this stuff outside of it. The, uh, Usman Tanvir Malik is somebody who have my students read. He has this story called The Eucalyptus, the pauper prince and the eucalyptus jinn um mm. who i would uh it's a, that and you could just find that online and read it he's really interesting he's a growing face i mean class like one of the the biggest novelists of of egypt najib mahfuz plays with a lot of speculative fiction themes it's been translated it's it's worth reading um there's a movie called Grain that's like sort of like thinking about a dystopian future and it builds on Quranic themes mm. uh, that, that I've used in teaching. Uh, and there's like this series on Netflix called The Protector. Mm. Um, I never watched it, but I always tell myself I need to watch it. So it might <laughs> be good. Um, but also even there's there's like uh, in terms of like movie representation, I mean, the, you know, one really interesting example and counter example. I mean, it's complementary to do in a sense is the Pitch Black series. Um, I don't know if you guys, Vin Diesel, Pitch Black. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've heard of, but haven't, haven't watched. So Pitch Black, uh, sort of as an aside to the main story, like on the spaceship they're going to, it's a bunch of Muslims going on Hajj, uh, but it's future Hajj on a different planet. And like the backstory is that they That's took a piece of... The, for the story? So they're on it. It's like a prison ship, but like there are these Muslims on it. Most of them die except for the one imam who then later comes... Uh, comes comes out in a later sort of uh, 
in the second movie of the series. Huh. The third movie, there are no Muslims. Okay. But it's like there's a sort of like backstory that, uh, you know, when humans expand, they create a new Mecca by taking a part of, of the Kaaba and like taking it to this new new planet. Whoa. And the thing that was interesting for me is that there's a prayer scene in it because it's a big debate among Muslims that if, if space travel happens, uh, like Malaysia, for instance, they have people in space, how do you pray? Uh, do you face Earth? What do you do? Right. And so on this like random planet they visit, all they they all face each other um, and bow towards each other. Which you know you mentioned Rumi. I mean Rumi has has an as an actual poem because there's a lot of things that are attributed to Rumi which are not Rumi. But the actual po- poem where he says that look the Kaaba and Mecca is empty. If you remove it, everyone's praying towards each other because the human heart is the house of God. Mm. So. I was really surprised to see that from a sci-fi series that, you know, that's actually, that's a deep reading of Islam, right? <laughs> to be able to be like, if Muslims go into space, that they would face each other. Uh, I was like, wow, that, 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 especially back I then, love that. Uh, that was like, that was super like, wow, you exceeded my expectations. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Now you have to go find all those, uh, those, those hidden hadiths that are in the Fast and the Furious series too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, maybe there are. I mean, I used to love that, right? I used to love Fast and the Furious, so there must be a reason for my love. <laughs> <laughs> nice, yeah. nice. Well, look, guys. Um, I, uh, I mean, I, I feel like I could talk to you uh, all night about this. Yeah, I just, I have a, a whole a host of other <laughs> questions here. But, but part of part of what we do on the show is obviously is is for me to get out of the way and see if see if my guests have questions for each other. So I did want to see if if uh, either of you had had any follow ups that you wanted to dive into, um, one with the other. Uh, Ali, did oh, you have yeah. anything for Michael? Sure, I could I could start. Um, I mean that that's like really interesting stuff. Um, I di- I didn't fully know. I mean I knew about the Mormon space stuff, but I didn't know that I didn't know that you could see constellations and planets on it. That's really interesting to me. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, but like, so so how do you then like view aliens and stuff like that? Oh, that's a really good question. Um, if you go back into especially nineteenth century Mormonism, where there was mm-hmm. a lot of comfort with speculation. Mm-hmm. Um, like Brigham Young believed the second president of the LDS church mm-hmm. believed that there were people living on other celestial bodies in our solar system, for instance. Um, of mm-hmm. course we now know to our knowledge that is not true. Um, unless there are secret people living underground on Mars, yeah. um, or folks in the oceans of Europa. Um, don't give up hope, Michael. I know, I know. Um, but, yeah, it's one of those things that um, is is there, but current uh, official LDS sources don't really explore. There is a point in scripture, though, that I really love, if, I, if it's all right that I bring it, uh, pull it up here. Um, there is a segment in which um, God is giving Moses a vision, and Moses report uh, is reporting God's words and says, "And worlds without number have I created, um, but only an account of this earth and the inhabitants thereof give mm-hmm. I unto you. For behold, there are many worlds that have passed away by the word of my power, and there are many that now stand, and innumerable are they unto man." but all things are numbered unto me for they are mine and I know them. Mm -hmm. So you have nods like that 
where mm-hmm. God is not only the God of this earth, but mm-hmm. of other worlds that we cannot even count that mm-hmm. have inhabitants that he knows. Mm-hmm. Um, like, not explored, but it's there. Like, mm-hmm. Mormonism is not a heli- it is not a geocentric faith mm-hmm. in a very interesting way. Mm-hmm. I hope that, that illuminates yeah, the question really a bit. Yeah, that's really Thank you. One question I had is you mentioned that when you were a kid, you found you liked the Narnia series. So I'm curious what you found compelling and reflecting back on it being often Christian allegories, mm-hmm. what are your thoughts about that? I mean, first of all, Aslan sounds like the Turkish word for lion, right? It Arsalan. is the Turkish word for lion. Uh, yeah. like <laughs> so, um, and so, you know, uh, so Twelver Shiism has a very strong sort of messianic aspect but the messianic aspect, at least in, in most types of Twelver Shiism, is what it means is the sort of restoration of justice in a world that's mm. unjust, right? Um, so th- there's actually no, like, you know, even Ibn Arabi, when he talks about the Mahdi, uh, he actually says that when the Mahdi comes, and the Mahdi is a promise from God, uh, s- religious scholars will actually dislike him because the things he says are against the stuff that's in their books. And they'll be like, well, the book says this, and he'll be like, no, it's not that, right? And But normal people, the common people, will be rejoiced because injustice will end, even if it's only for a moment before the ending of this world, right? And of mm. course, Islam has this notion that this world is this world. When it ends, there are other worlds. Like, And in a sense, paradise and hell are other worlds. Mm-hmm. Although Ibn Arabi, for Ibn Arabi, hell is just the future of this world. Mm, interesting (laughs) yeah it's a really interesting post-apocalyptic there you go (laughs) yeah exactly right um but uh but for me like it it was i mean the sort of the symbol of the lion even as jesus because you know jesus is sacred for muslims Mm -hmm. is such a powerful one Mm -hmm. for us like the lion was already you know ali is not me uh, ali the son-in-law of muhammad right is is symbolized as a lion frequently the lion used to be on the mm-hmm. flag of iran since the 14th 13th century mm-hmm. uh, as a symbolism of of, of that mm. um so and ali himself is a very sort of christ-like character sort of mm. misunderstood uh frank herbert even picked up on that actually uh he he names uh Paul, Paul, the main figure's uh, sister, younger sister, Alia. Mm-hmm. And he even says, I named, it, I named her after Ali. Uh, so like this sort of aspect of, of justice, you know, being a stranger that has to be found. And then once it's restored, it's a cosmic restoration, right? It's not a restoration of a particular civilization or people, even though that aspect is there, but it was the imagery of summer returning, right? That, that the restoration, so that as a child, that was really nice to me, right? Because, I mean, uh, you know, being from the Middle East, you, you really appreciate justice, if it's possible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you know with, with everything that we could say about Messiah building and all of that, I think that's the one thing that uh, Frank Herbert, I think he's right, that, that humans are always sort of striving uh, to do this, and it actually is their own undoing by creating gods out of people. But it's nice to have the hope that one day justice is possible, right? Yeah. Uh, the the notion, that's the thing that I don't like about some forms of sci-fi. It's like, why is it always the same shit, man? I remember I was watching one of these recent TV shows. What was it? Uh, 
the the 99 the 100 the teenage drama about going into and you know uh, spoiler alert for all of you who are watching it i'm sorry but they destroy earth eventually and i'm just like this is so stupid and then you just find another planet oh how what's it called how convenient right uh it just it just seems really ridiculous to me and you know uh, about the sort of point that that you had raised i mean one thing that i explore and i i'm really interested to think about how pre-modern muslims would have thought about other planets the way that mm-hmm. we think about it um because they're pretty clear that every planet has its own inhabitants but those inhabitants we can't see them with these bodies that we have mm. So even Ibn Arabi's understanding of that other universe is that this body has to stay here. And then you're given a new body, a body that's uniquely yours. You're not taking someone else's, but it's your body as appropriate to that world. Hmm. And I th- I, I mean, I, I, I even think that like, you know, this is why I was talking about like, oh, they just recreate Earth. If it's a recreated Earth, if you're only somewhere through uh, artificial atmosphere, for these pre-moderns, they'd be like, you're still on Earth. You haven't left Earth. And mm-hmm. in fact, Ibn Arabi's, you know, expanded Earth hell, it includes everything up to Saturn. That is the, the limits of there. What's it called? He's like, yeah, all of this is Earth. Right? <laughs> Just like, forget it. So I've, I've constantly been thinking about like, you know, what, how do notions of what does it mean to be an alien? Is a human defined solely by their body? by their physiological makeup mm-hmm. or is it something else and is that the line for distinguishing us between aliens because he goes to this other universe mm-hmm. he sees uh, the people that he sees there they have bodies of gold of silver uh-huh. of one of some of them are made of musk of saffron yeah, he says that is the root element uh, they spontaneously generate uh, he mentioned sort of subtly that people have had sex with them and it's fine because their religion has no regulations but because we only have regulations because we have to worry about childbirth. Um, but in all of this, <laughs> I know, right? True speculative fiction. Speculative, right? But in all of this, he is pretty adamant that these are all humans who not mm. only know God, but know God better than us. Mm. And that, the, that, that form, because God is a creator who's always creating... Uh, similar to the point that you realize it was really resonated mm-hmm. with me because the notion is that God always created, will mm-hmm. always create, and creates in ways that has no repetition. I mean, this is a principle of theology in Sunni Islam. There is no repetition in the creation of God. Mm-hmm. So for me, the nomenclature then becomes important. What mm-hmm. do we define as alien? What do we define as human? And what are the limits to these both? And that's why Frank Herbert is interesting for me because, I mean, we're living in a society where other humans are not even, are considered alien, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, for me, I'm like, this this white dude in the 1950s at least is willing to admit that Muslims are human <laughs> and that, you know, they're, the future of humanity is the future of Islam, Yeah. right? Regardless of how you want to think about it, because there are so many, just like how Christianity is global beyond the amount of Christians, so is Islam, right? Right. And so are other things. So that's sort of like my rambling thoughts of like, you know, what I've... (laughs) Actually, you you talking, expanding a little bit on Ibn um, Mm al-Arabi and what he wrote, uh, recalled to me uh, some aspects of Joseph Smith's thought. He was the founder mm-hmm. of the LDS yeah. Church and Mormonism. Um, there is this idea that um, uh, the earth will be redeemed along with humanity at the end mm-hmm. of time. And mm-hmm. contrary to Al Arabi, 
um, the earth will become a heavenly abode for the mm -hmm. people who lived here. And yeah. the bodies will be transformed to be able to bear the glory that the earth will take mm, on. Yeah. Um, uh, in yeah. fact, the, the word that's used in, in these texts is translated. <laughs> translated, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. I, 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 for Ibn al-Arabi, hell is actually not bad. Oh, Hell is Great. better than earth. Hell is better than earth and it eventually becomes, because God's mercy dominates over wrath, hell, hell itself becomes a place in which the face of God will be visible too. Okay, there's a lot more resonance lot, with Joseph yeah, Smith's thought now that you mentioned yeah. that. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, it, 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 I mean, for me, like, you know, when I teach my religion in Alien Worlds class, I mean, uh, you know, Frank Herbert, in terms of thinking about religion, is interesting because he's a sci-fi author who's comfortable with religion and uh -huh. that humans will always be religious, right? It's just a part mm -hmm. of being human. Get rid of all these religions, there'll be other religions, right? Mm -hmm. um, but like, I think uh, one of the things that I really want my students to see, and I, I, that's helped me a lot in my life, was just that like, you know, people have thought about these questions in such interesting ways in the past, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, it really bears thinking about what you know, it, it, people have thought about it so much that really the question is not, will it happen? But it's like, what's going on behind each of these visions and what sort of underlying vision of the world and what it means to be human is being presented, right? right. Because it really reveals so much, right, uh -huh. about about a person's under notion of what does it mean to be a human? Mm -hmm. What are the limits of being a human? I mean, Star mm -hmm. Trek, I love Star Trek, but that doesn't necessarily give the best view of what it means to be a human or versus an alien. You know, I'm not hitting on Star Trek. No, sorry, no. sorry, 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 little trick. No, that's that's totally fair. Um, yeah. the the aliens in Star Trek are other humans. Are, are humans? Not, not exactly. only appearance wise, and not only because of TV <laughs> makeup budgets. Exactly. <laughs> like there are very exactly. few times where Star Trek actually tries to like present an alien that we have trouble understanding. Yeah. Well, this yeah. this this reminds me that um, I don't know that we've had anybody exploring the on the show yet exploring you know the religion of of Star Trek and and Vulcan philosophy or anything um, and uh, future show yeah maybe to do do something like that and you know I mean obviously. You know, with with the way that there are actually practicing Jedi's out there, we we could have a Jedi and a Vulcan on the show. <laughs> that would be very interesting that, and, uh, and informative. Find out, try to find someone who actually worships the Bajoran prophets. That would be yeah. fascinating. It's, it's a deeper cut than I'm able to get on that one. Okay, <laughs> Deep Space Nine. It's the yeah, Deep Space Nine. It's yeah. the it's the lesser known of the '90s treks. Nice, nice. Well, there's, you know, there's, like I said, there's so much to explore with you guys. Um, I wanna, I wanna just quickly do before we, before we head out here. I wanna uh, just do some, some rapid fire um, questions since I didn't get to do a bunch of them. So, so Ali, um, Sci-Fi Channel versus Lynch. What's your adaptation? Uh, there's something deeply disturbing about the visuality of the Lynch version. This might just be the fact that I was born in 1988. Have you seen the Lynch film? <laughs> yes, I have. <laughs> I know, exactly, right? It's a David Lynch thing. So, uh, the David Lynch film, it both changes it into a sort of like rah-rah, like anti-imperialist, no sort of nuance uh, uh, thing. Um, and I just didn't like, like, yeah, David Lynch, 
That, that's that's basically it. I, I don't enjoy it. I, no, I do don't it. enjoy watching it. All right. But so your, your the, vote the, is for the sci-fi. <laughs> definitely. And I think I have a feeling that this one is actually going to be my favorite eventually. I, I will give uh, Villeneuve that. All right. <laughs> Michael, uh, favorite adaptation of the Narnia series. Which which one's your go-to? Oh, that I, I haven't seen too many. But I do think that the recent ones um, from the early 2000s did a good job at ironing out some of the narrative oddities of the books. Mm. Mm-hmm. So Prince Caspian, the book, most of the events are reported secondhand in a flashback. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the movie gets around that in very clever ways mm-hmm. uh, and also brings to the four character motivations that in the book are kind of implied, obscured, or, um, or just not present on the surface level. Um, so I, I think that it's a fairly decent representation, um, even though um, it has its flaws. I think my daughter would be on on the same page with you. She really liked that movie. <laughs> 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 All right. So um, Ali, cosplaying as which character from Dune? Which one are you going for? <laughs> Definitely not a cosplayer, guys. Definitely not a cosplayer. Uh, all love to cosplayers. I am not a cosplayer. You don't want to make a still suit and wander around with tubes up your nose for hours not, at a con? Definitely not tubes that recycle my own urine. Uh, yeah, no. Oh, but that would be a technological miracle. He's zipping himself into a sleeping bag, calling himself a sandworm. <laughs> that would actually be the funnest form of cosplay. Michael, how about you? Who are you cosplaying from in, in the Narnia series? Oh, in the Narnia series? Um, so actually back in 2007 for the release of the seventh Harry Potter book, I realized something that I had wanted to do for a long time and made myself a centaur costume. Um, now there aren't too many centaur characters in Narnia, but if I were to do a Narnia character, that is what I would want to do. Wait, so who was the back or the front? that? I said, who was uh, the No, the I, I, I made a skeleton out of connects oh. and covered it with felt. Um, wow. That's, yeah. that's the ambition right there. That's oh, the, it was, that's the audacity we were talking about at the beginning. Oh, it was so fun. <laughs> it, it kind of fell apart. It was way too heavy, but I can say that I did it. All right. All right. And last one, um, Ali, Duncan Idaho, is that a Muslim name? <laughs> no, definitely not. It was definitely not. <laughs> it might be a Mormon name. Yeah. <laughs> it was right there. It was right there, and I missed it. Oh. Way to go! I'm gonna, I'm gonna, it, it, that was a layup for Michael. All right, appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> guys this is so much fun um thanks so much um thank you and uh ali if people haven't gotten enough and they want to read more of your writings or sign up for your class or something how can how can they uh do that uh yeah they could i have a twitter that i haven't used in six months but <laughs> it's there uh i have a website where i will eventually put the article up it's just my name uh dot com um email me uh taking the class 
get enrolled in Bucknell University. There you go. That's a pitch. <laughs> <laughs> pitch for a four-year degree just to get that. Yep. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. And uh, Michael, do you do you have? Uh, I know you you're around there on on the internet here and there and stuff. Do you have any place that you um, leave your thoughts? Not really. I do have a couple blog posts that I wrote back in the day on a Pathios blog called Peculiar People. Um, and some of that goes into speculative fiction territory, like the theology of Second Life or a review of um, the 2018 film Sorry to Bother You that incidentally brings in C.S. Lewis. Um, and then I do have a couple blog posts on the blog Times and Seasons. But I don't have any like uh, central clearinghouse for my thoughts. I have to run over to Georgetown to, to. Well, I guess can't actually go to Georgetown right now to knock on your door. I don't know. You, you we'll just have to meet folks. right across the street. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Well, this is this is so much fun, and um, I hope you two will will stay in touch, and and I look forward to uh, to hearing more uh, of your thoughts as um, as yeah, just more of the stuff develops. Absolutely. Yeah, this was wonderful. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you yeah. for organizing this. Great. Definitely. Great. Thank you so much. Dear listener, that's a wrap on this week's Interfaith-ish. I want to again thank my guests Ali Karju-Ravari and Michael Haycock. <laughs> so, so much fun having them both on the show this week. In the show notes for this episode on your podcast feed, you can find a bunch of links to articles written by Ali and Michael on the subjects we discussed, as well as some other great recommendations and resources to geek out on. As always, I want to give a shout out to my fellow interfaith astronauts, Miranda Hovmeyer and Sue Katz Miller, and our musical maestro, Jeff Philosopher. And thank you, dear listener, for spending your hour with us. If you're listening to this over at TacomaRadio.org, you can also find our archives of past shows on the website or check us out on your podcast aggregator of choice. Most of our shows have extra content over on the podcast version, so subscribe and you won't miss a minute of what our insightful guests have to say each week. We're on social media at Interfaith-ish and you can keep writing us about the Interfaith-ish you wish to dish at interfaithish at gmail.com. That's I-N-T-E-R-F-A-I-T-H-I-S-H at gmail.com. Interfaithish will be back in two weeks. Until then, keep it locked to WOWD 94.3 FM for great music and programs seven days a week, streaming online at tacomaradio.org. That's right, dear listener. This morning, it's Muslims and Mormons and Muad'Dib. Oh, my. Here's another one. So strap on those still suits, my interfaith Fremen. It's time to get into some interfaith-ish. So start huffing that spice, dear listener. We're about to navigate some interfaith-ish. Nailed it.